Noble Experiment by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 17, The Renegans and the Mergendoc and the Elders of Mulrain. Brady's Journal in the Freeholder Caves, around 50 days out from Peace Mountain. In less than an hour, the Janvian suns will rise. Antovian and I will begin our journey to find the location of the Elders of Mulrain. No Mergendorf has ever found Walrain, yet thousands of dwarfs have been there over the span of time on this planet. When they return, however, they cannot remember where they have been nor how they got there. Treeform tells me that a journey by land involves some type of energy field being placed around us in order to prevent others from following our movements. Nevertheless, with a single Renegan computer, the size of a transistor radio, they will begin to track us and the movements of the field itself. Messages will convey this information to the freeholders around the planet, who have already begun to travel in the direction of the plain of Iyao. The elders care very little about what I have to say about the planet Earth. I'm sure when they take Bahrain, I will be able to return to Earth and get to Bob Coffee. Together we can take well-calculated action to warn our people of the Arpeg and its consequences for August 31st, 1992. Perseverance, Lorna. Brady looked over his shoulder, and Renegan Sheesh was staring at his writing. I do not understand what you have been writing, he said into his translator. It's a journal of sorts, Sheesh. I've kept a written record of my experiences. As I thought, a very commendable venture, this writing. It has all but vanished on my planet. With our electronic devices and verbal communications, we have left writing behind us. Then you've lost a valuable and singular form of communication, said Brady. I'm afraid we have. Something we could learn from your Earth, said Sheesh as he paused. Messages tell us that we have 1,000 freeholders, and we are less than 25 miles from the plain of Iyao. They have been ordered to wait until you and Antobian have made your journey to the Gruckens. They will, of course, have arrived by then. Just how many dwarfs do you expect to have when you reach Valrain? Estimates are over 500,000. But we will be able to track your progress. That's what I just wrote in my journal. We have a long day's journey ahead of us, Sheesh, he said as Antobian entered the room. Are you ready, my dear friend? I am ready, said Brady, tucking the journal into the pouch under his upper garment. Are your instruments functioning properly, Sheesh? asked Antovian. Yes, all is set, replied the Renegan. The scouts have already set out, and the patrol will bring you just outside the Hiao Road. Good. I don't want any surprises from Grok. Our computers show no sign of Grok or his dwarfs. More than likely, he is in the village with the other dwarfs in order to avoid detection. Our scans will be relayed to the approaching freeholders, correct? Yes, yes, my friend. You must calm yourself. Remember, you have a half a million dwarfs behind you. I am sure that Valrain is not without its defenses, said the thoughtful Antobian. Nor are we without our defense of freedom, retorted the Renegan. He said, putting his massive hand on the dwarf's shoulder. And Brady, we will meet again in Valrain, added the renegade as he shook hands with Brady.
Brady was still quite apprehensive, but he had little choice in the matter at this point. He followed Antovian through the tunnel and up the slope to the outside. The freeholder dwarf smoothed the rock back as the first light of day broke over the still landscape. The air remained cool, and the breath of the dwarf steamed in the pre-dawn light. Brady looked through the forest toward the far horizon in search of Grok as one of the suns popped over the hill. Grok and his dwarfs were in the village. Everyone was sleeping except Grok. The commander had been awake for some time, awaiting a signal from the computer that would indicate life forms in the hills. A bright orange light flashed and Grok looked up from the tiny screen on his device. Paris, he yelled, pushing his second in command. Paris awoke and got to his feet. A signal, commander, he asked as Grok handed him the computer. Yes, up in that direction, he said, pointing to the hills to the right. Ten dwarfs and the earthmen, that's it, said Grok. Everyone up. They are heading toward the hill of the revered ones, turning toward the plain of Iyao. Good, let us go and get this problem over with. The Iyao road was light red amidst the heightened brown soil around it. It commenced at the far side of a footbridge over a small stream. From the bridge, the road moved north along the side of the rolling hills. Brady stopped on the bridge and looked into the shallow blue water. What are those glowing things, he asked. I believe they are similar to the fish on your planet, although these animals are much more gullible. They can be trapped very easily. Really, smiled Brady, what are they called? They are called lushfins. I wonder if they're biting this morning, laughed Brady as they crossed the bridge. Immediately when they stepped onto the red clay, the invisible field sprung into place in a wide area around them. Brady was still suspicious. He turned and asked one of the freeholders to come forward. The dwarf crossed the bridge with his arms slowly outstretched. When he reached the far side, he knocked on the invisible field. Intobian turned to his friend, gripping the Dachau, and he raised his blue brows. Satisfied, Brady. I suppose. They waved a tree farm across the bridge and headed down the road, soon fading into the distant valley. Grok and his dwarfs moved across the bridge over the stream. The field is moving at a walking pace, Commander. And Brady? I assume they are both in that field, said Paris. And we can break this field. It is tripolar in origin and originating from the revered one's hill. We could break it, but that would alert the revered ones. How I wish, began Grok. His face reeked with frustration. Wish what, Commander? How I wish I never chose to bring that human Hank Brady aboard my vessel so many years ago. Hours had passed. The suns, always in their twilight positions, cast their rays across the shadowy landscape. Brady and Antovian had chosen to rest on the light green granite rock next to the high blue grass of a wide field. Brady was still complaining about the food. While this food is acceptable, Antovian, it's all vegetable. Don't you dwarfs have any meat on the planet? Killing animals is considered an excessive act. I have tasted animal meat, though. It is not very good. Well, when I get back to Earth, I'm going to sink my teeth into the juiciest steak, some baked potato. Ah, I can almost taste it. Look, over there, said Antovian, pointing across the field. Grok? Grok? shouted Brady as he sprang to his feet. 
No, I'm sorry, I was pointing to the Guana Ru in the field with its young. Near the slope of the distant hill, about 200 yards from them, was a slickly built animal with fine, almost fluorescent yellow hair and deep cat eyes. It leaped into the high air, perhaps 20 or 30 feet upward, all six legs leaving the ground. And to its rear, five smaller versions of the Guana Ru imitated their mother's graceful leap. A Guana what? Guana Ru. Harmless creatures. They are vegetarians. You know, from my point of view as an Earthman, when I look at this bright sky and these animals, I just can't believe it. If I were to tell them on Earth that I was out here, he said, stopping in mid-sentence as he looked above them, a dark red creature resembling a ten-foot butterfly flew across the sky. What was that? Crescents. A similar creature called a gabdor is used for transportation. Are you rested, Brady? Rested? You bet I'm rested. Let's get out of here. There are 16 hours of daylight left, Aunt Tobian told him as they climbed from the rock, and I do not fancy encountering any Greckens at night. Are they vicious? Vicious, snapped Aunt Tobian. Why, they're downright obnoxious. They, uh, they'll just have to wait. I can't explain a Grecken. In fact, I don't know anyone who can explain a Grecken. Brock paced around the road on the edge of the force field, waiting for it to advance. Field is moving again, Commander, said Paris. The obsessed Grock nodded his head as if his anger had stolen his capacity for words. He stomped ahead of the others, sometimes brushing against the force field as he trailed Brady. The next 16 hours were not the most cherished hours of Brady's life. Even after repeated stops and extended rest periods, he was incredibly fatigued. They had entered the deep forest with trees taller than redwoods and hiked for hours. The suns were setting now, and the air grew colder. Antovian had estimated that they should be approaching the Eau Plain very soon. As he looked at Brady, huffing and puffing, Antovian hoped he was right. I can offer you some help, my friend, he said. No, if you say it's just a little further, I can make it, said Brady. They traveled down a very gentle forested slope, and the road curved to the right, opening up into the edge of the forest. In front of them, in the twilight, like a limitless ocean, was the massive Eau Plain. Now where are these Gruckens? demanded Brady as he plopped himself onto the ground. There's a stream, and in back of it is the plain. They're miserable little creatures, grumbled Antovian as his shoes suddenly disappeared from his feet. He looked around, scowling viciously, and his lips were buzzing. Brady, not understanding what was happening, stared at the dwarf's bare feet. As he looked up at Antovian's face, an egg-shaped creature appeared in the air above them, bouncing from side to side. Oh, boy, said Brady as he exhaled deeply. The Grucken had a hairless head and bright, bubbly blue eyes. But what irritated Antovian the most as it bounced was its perpetual grin. It had no visible arms or legs, and its skin was a light green. Shoes, shoes, oh, shoes missing from your feet, snickered the Grucken. <laughs> I said, put back my shoes. Put back your shoes. <laughs> it asked as it kept giggling. Shall I inform the revered ones of Wawi about your chicanery? The little Grucken's smile dropped, and he became perfectly still. The shoes reappeared on Antovian's feet. I thought you were a traveler. A 
traveler to be tormented by your tricks and shenanigans. Tormented? No, I must consult, said the Gruffin, disappearing into the twilight. Aggravating creatures, said Antovian. He had better not return if he and his friends know what's good for them. Beings that disappear, asked Brady. Sailing around in midair, shoes vanishing, traveling through hollow cubes. You think you have problems. Hundreds of Gruckens began to appear in a wide variety of brightly colored outfits. They were of assorted sizes and positioned in a number of places. In the trees, along the river, on the ground, in the air. From this multitude, a Grucken, almost as tall as Antovian, moved across the ground with no apparent means of locomotion. I am Janta, the Institute of the Gruckens, he said as he stopped before them. You are in charge of these miserable creatures. We are not miserable creatures, quite ineffectual and responsive to the proper authority, answered the Institute. I must apologize, he said as he looked at the Grucken who had greeted them. For the way you were treated upon your arrival into the area, for your arrival into the domain. Domain? asked Brady. I see you are not acquainted with our ways. The domain extends to the forest edge. It is the realm where our powers are effective. In terms of evolution, you're not like the Mergendorf, remarked Brady. You talk as one not schooled in the planet's ways, said the Institutor. What he means, Institutor, in the metaphysical sense, we are both very tired, said Antolvian, covering for his friend. Of course, of course, the day has been long for you, and night's rest will refresh you. Are we close to Bahrain? asked Antolvian. Oh, close, close, but far away. You need not worry further about walking. Transportation will be provided for you from this point onward. Well, that's a relief, said Brady, not used to 16 hours of daylight. Pizip, the grunkin who met you, will accompany you to Bahrain. For tonight, however, we will watch over you as you camp on the forest edge. That will be most appreciated, I think, Institutor. The Institutor turned toward the river and concentrated. A fire of giant logs appeared and blazed in the enveloping darkness. Brady, beginning to accept the unusual events, merely shook his head as the Institutor spoke to them again. And now you'll suffer. Surprisingly, nothing appeared before them. Brady found his stomach cavity instantly filled with an adequate supply of food. Brady pulled both hands inward and rubbed his stomach. He knew the food was there, but it just didn't seem right. There's food in there? He asked, half smiling at the Institutor. Yes, now you can rest. If you need assistance during the night, you will call, and we will heed your call, said the Institutor as the gruckens like fireflies in the night began to disappear one by one. The Institutor was the last to leave, and as he blinked away, Brady turned to Antovian. Can we trust them? If the field was not in place, he said as they moved toward the fire, I would say absolutely no. Not because they're deceitful, but because they are foolish and childlike. Well, we only have one of them for the rest of the trip, said Brady as he warmed his hands by the blaze. One is enough, replied Antovian, looking at the rising moons. I don't know about your human morphology, but my Dorfian morphology is telling me to rest. I suppose they'll provide sleep for us, too, smiled Brady, as he sat next to blankets that were spread before the fire. Yes, I know what you mean. I prefer to savor my food and build my fire. If that's an excess, so be it. They lay on the sleeping cloths and pulled the blankets over their bodies. 
Brady gazed upward, scanning the sky for patterns of stars that he had learned aboard the vessel. When he found Earth's sun, he pointed to the night air. Well, there it is, my world. Gives me a reassuring feeling each time I see it, yet I feel so helpless. There it is, and here I am. It's like being in a glass booth, unable to escape, but able to see the ultimate murder taking place. It will not take place. We will take Vorain, said the dwarf as he closed his eyes. Oh, yes, good old Vorain. We don't even know what Vorain is. A half a million dwarfs is good insurance. But what is Vorain? asked Brady. And this stopping of all progress, why this frowning upon consumption? I'd just like to know what happened here caused such an attitude. It has always been that way, Brady. That tells me nothing. It's all baloney. What is baloney? asked the dwarf. Let's just say there must have been something which dictated this philosophy. I do not know. I only know it is wrong. We need freedom of expression to reach our full potential, whatever that might be. There comes a time, Brady, when beings, whoever they might be, must dissolve these ties so they can have the rightful place in determining their own lives. I could talk for hours, but I know it's late. Brady was less concerned about Antovian's philosophy than he was about stark facts. Are you sure we'll be safe? I don't like the idea of Grok lurking out there. The commander has his priorities. Antovian, you're too understanding. I assure you, Brady, that we're safe. The revered ones would not let harm come to us. Brock and his dwarfs had camped on the edge of the stalled force field. They were below an overhanging ledge and prepared to spend the night. When Brady and Antovian walked from the forest, the orange light on Paris's computer would begin to flash. The field was down. Brock's patrol only had five miles to make up. Brock and his dwarfs were exhausted as they began the journey through the darkened woods. Obsessed, Grok drove forward over the clay, ahead of his dwarfs as he closed in on his target. An hour and a half later, he arrived at the clearing at the edge of the woods, with his dwarfs following directly behind. Ahead, in front of a blazing fire, were the two sleeping travelers, unaware of the peril which lie just several hundred feet behind them. Shall we attack, Commander? asked Paris, eager to end the expedition and return to the perimeter. Yes. Yes, 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 finally. Prepare to call the tram. Flutons on vaporize. The dwarfs raised their spider-shaped weapons and squeezed the buttons on either side. Red energy shot across the air, but to their total surprise, the energy bounced off the rock formation where they had been walking an hour and a half before. The energy caused a slight fire in the underbrush. No! shouted Grok, his voice echoing throughout the forest. Over there! Put out the fire at once! He ordered, and the dwarfs rushed forward, stomping on the underbrush. Very unusual, Commander, said Paris as he looked at his computer. Oh, grumbled Grok, I would say that we have been transported by the Grokkens. That aggravation would be very typical of them. Paris, is there a Grokken domain in this area? Domains are almost impossible to read on our instruments, Commander. I do detect a slight drop in barometric pressure at the edge of the forest. Well, why didn't you say something before we traveled all that distance? Commander, atmospheric changes are not all that uncommon, he said, biting his lower lip. Can I talk freely, Grok? Yes, go ahead, said Grok as he rubbed his eyes. We're getting close to stopping Brady, despite our transportation here. 
I suggest that we sleep, and then we travel through the woods to be at the very edge of this disturbance. It is most likely at the edge of their domain. But they will stay with the Grekans, and the Grekans will have the power within their domain. Not indefinitely, Commander. Can you read the opposite edge of that domain? The domain, of course, begins five miles directly ahead of us. According to the instrument, it extends along a very narrow and wavy corridor. My computer shows another road three miles to our right. It, too, will end on the plain of Iyao. Understood, he said as he put his hand on Paris's shoulder. Thank you for putting things in perspective, Paris. I mustn't be so driven. Agreed, said Paris. Now let us get some rest. One dwarf was posted in five-hour shifts to monitor the computer. By the time the first signs of daylight were peeking through the forest, they were all rested and ready to continue. They left the rock area, crossing through the hilly terrain to the road three miles to the west. Grok was in so much more control now that he had rested, not nearly as driven. He pushed them all forward. He hurried them down the road in order to gain a good position over the travelers. Less than an hour later, in the early morning light of both suns, they emerged at the top of a large hill, overlooking a valley and another hill below. Thousand dwarfs spread out before them. I have never seen anything like this in my life, exclaimed Grok. A most impressive sight, Commander. But why didn't our instruments sense them? They still don't. I know of no such technology, and I am at a loss to explain what they're doing here, said Grok. It would be like they are massing for some kind of fight. I would advise Commander Var disassociating ourselves from whatever's going on and stay after Brady. Until we leave this area, we will not be able to track these life forms. Then we go after Brady, ordered Grok as he pointed westward. I would not attempt to move at all, Commander Grok, said a voice to their rear as a host of sharpened spears were thrust up upon them, the points irritating their flesh. I am Treeform. Treeform and some of his dwarfs were positioned just behind the main troop body. Take their weapons. Seems as though that your little quest is over, Commander Grok. Brady and Antobian were preparing for the day's journey. The Institutor appeared, neglecting to inform them of the events during the night. Grukin started appearing again, bouncing and bobbing in the air like a thousand squealing chipmunks. He motioned the Institutor and the small Grukin and came over to him. We are ready to travel. Bring the Trevadors. The Trevadors. Oh, yes, the Trevadors, said Please, as he looked toward the plain and concentrated. Two beastie spider animals, like the ones in the village, appeared on either side of the river. They were packed with supplies on either side of a center cavity where the rider sat. Brady was slightly fearful as the party advanced toward the river's edge. A wooden bridge suddenly materialized so they could cross the swiftly flowing river. Antovian, used to such creatures, mounted the Trevador. He looked down at the reluctant Brady. They are harmless, Brady, he said as the creature emitted a hissing noise. Harmless? He's breathing. It means nothing. Come on, we have a long journey. I'm not used to such things. As he talked, the Grukens lifted him in the air and onto the Trevador. Well? asked Antovian as he smiled. Well, I guess I'll be all right, said Brady, squirming to get comfortable aboard the creature. Then be off, be off. Please, please, 
Be off, be off. Yes, of course, yes, of course, be off, said the tiny Gruckin as he moved through the air. And Tobian instructed the Trevador. In perfect coordination, the animal began to move with all its eight legs. They understand? Well, they have intelligence of um, a dog, maybe, on your planet. Maybe even a little smarter. Ahead, then, smiled Brady, as to his amusement, the Trevador moved smoothly forward. They headed out across the plain, moving at a rate that would not tire the Trevadors. And over a hill, three miles to the east, the scouts of the freeholders began to track their movements as the freeholder leaders prepared to move the army of Doris onto the plain and toward the elders of Ballroom. Join us next week as a noble experiment by Robert P. Fitton continues. This has been a production of Fitton Theatre of the Words.